0: audio podcast network
1: love demands expression it will not stay still stay silent be good be modest be seen and not heard no it will break out in tongues of praise the high Tongues of praise, the high note that smashes the glass and spills the liquid. That is a quote by Jeanette Winterson. And I really like that because we're over here celebrating us some Pride Month. We're smashing
0: the glass and spilling the liquid, (laughs) y'all.
1: Right. Um, And I mean, why we cover uh, LGBTQ plus women all year round. We want to highlight them extra this month here on... Whining about history, where we talk about women that you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have. And queer women are super in that
0: category 1, because, 000%. as everyone knows, gay people were just invented in like 2002. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe
1: 2015. It's when it somewhere be- between 10 and 20 years ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, brand new, popped out of nowhere, maybe fell from space. Who knows? Right.
1: It's just like, boom, I'm here.
0: Yeah. Glittery gay space goddesses. Right. <laughs> well, and you know what I love about this is that. I, re- I So I remember growing up and, you know, the LGBTQ plus movement was really picking up steam and especially the fight for same sex marriage and marriage equality was re- like it was a hot button topic. Yep. Um, friendships were made and destroyed over that topic and that's okay because I don't need to be friends with people who don't think same-sex couples can get married, so fuck off. Anyway, uh, And but you know you learn about kind of the breakout gay icons, but a lot of these women, especially queer women of color, get just totally buried, you know? It, it, it's like women's history. It's like they're the breakout icons like Marie Curie, Amelia Earhart, Rosa Parks, and it's like, and crap I can't name a fourth I don't know women from history so this is I love learning about this for me and also I don't know it helps me appreciate pride a little more and especially the point of pride which is being loud and proud and expressing who you are right and because that wasn't okay for so long and people still say it's not okay which is bullshit
1: it's like stop being so shitty I, you're wrong you're terrible
0: dbad don't be a dick life rule number I, one yeah 100%. it will solve 99 percent of your problems the other one percent will be when other people don't follow rule number one <laughs> which is a lot anyway uh it is my wine today and i uh I don't even remember ordering this. It's from my sexy wine box. It is Dave Harvey, which we've had before. He was the one that we had the um, Gewurzminer. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Which actually, I almost knew how to pronounce that because I was re-watching Frasier for the billionth time, and they actually make a reference to that wine. And I was like, okay, say it like Frasier. And I did, and I was so proud of myself, and then I've it's it's gone. It's gone. Anyway, this is from his Upriver series. It's a 2020 Washington Cabernet Sauvignon Tempranillo or Tempranillo. I don't know. Like maybe I'm just. It's
1: Tempranillo, but I don't know either. It's one of
0: those things where it's like, okay, but is that just how Americans say it? Or English speakers say it? And it's like. That's true. Like how we like to say quesadilla.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I, like when I <laughs> say a joke. that, I say it, yeah. like because I actually,
0: it was the sweetest thing. I went to this restaurant and I was hanging out. With, we, it was me, my friend, and his little brother. And his little brother was from this like really small town. And he got the quesadilla burger. But he went quesadilla? Like he wasn't sure. But instead of saying it with the confidence that someone has, has to say quesadilla, he hesitated and the waitress was just like you sweet little baby i will take care you of you sweet summer child <laughs> you sweet summer child it was a he i felt bad cuz he was all embarrassed cuz we were like oh no you got to commit if you're going to say quesadilla you got to fucking commit but it's like hey you know what you learned and now you know for next time so you can either say it wrong with confidence say or say it correctly or yeah
1: just say quesadilla and just yeah. own
0: it yeah Like, I want a quesadilla with on a tortilla. Poor favor.
1: Poor favor. (laughs) Poor
0: favor. It's funny. There's this running joke in King of the Hill. You know, Peggy can't speak Spanish very well. And she frequently mispronounces words. And uh, one of the things she says is, escúchame. And that means listen to me. But she's saying it as like, excuse Excuse me. me. Like, escúchame. Uh, And it's funny because really that's what she's saying. Like someone says something and she's like, the fuck did you say? You better listen up. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, back to the wine. What are we drinking? Something with a fish on the bottle. Something with fish on the bottle. And this starts out with a literary quote. So, you know, the shit is pinkies up fancy. When I looked... I knew I might never again see so much of the earth. So beautiful. The beautiful being when something you know added to something you see in a whole that is different than the sum of its parts. I got lost halfway through that sentence. I was like, just start saying words. Just read the words as individual things. Right. (laughs) And that is from uh, Norman McLean's A River Runs Through It and Other Stories. Every time... Okay, every time I hear a river runs through it, I'm like, someone ate Taco Bell at 2 a.m. and made mistakes. <laughs> right? um, that's because I'm a bad They're just person. just like I'm a squiggle here. No, it's just diarrhea. I know. Yeah. Okay, okay. I, I
1: just want to make sure. I, I was trying sure. to be more appropriate.
0: You know what? Then get off this podcast. You clearly don't know what we do here. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not a literary genius. Leave your
1: appropriateness at the door, please. Leave your
0: appropriateness
1: at the door.
0: Because we don't have time for it. And I know I did not say appropriateness correctly. And Kelly, I you're, was just going like, to you, roll but you're, with here's it. Here's the thing, though. You are just staring through me like, <laughs> like I heard you're that. You're I fucking be- heard it. I'm not going to say anything, but I'm going to like say I heard it with Finish my eyes. Finish your
1: wine description so I can drink the wine. Uh,
0: no, that's not what this podcast
1: is about. It's about women. We haven't even gotten there yet. God.
0: All right. So this uprair. Up- shit. I'm completely sober. That's the worst part. The Upriver Series Cabernet Sauvignon Tempranillo blend combines the lighter texture and the savory flavors of a Tempranillo with the intense jammy black fruit of Cabernet Sauvignon to create a unique wine that embraces the best of Washington vineyards. I was just talking about Fraser, and this is from Washington. It's all coming together. Uh, my Upriver series wines are blended using the best grapes. Mm-hmm. What a novel concept. I thought you would use the shit grapes. Right, Thank you're you. The,
1: these ones go in the, tell other me it's these a, are the leftover. Tell grapes. me it's
0: a quality wine too. Right. Cause that means so much. Are these farm raised grapes? Cause that means they could be raised in cages. Hand, I don't know. Hand shit. Picked, hand picked handpicked farm raised grapes. God damn it. Regardless of AVA. I don't know what AVA means. And it's capital A, capital V, capital A. So if
1: it's ABA, which would be alcohol, yeah, no, it's it's a V. -V.
0: All right. Anyway, I don't care. Uh, Thank you for giving me the chance to reel in, haha. Unique wines of passion and making my dreams come true as I fucking roast you as I'm reading your wine. Actually, that was a fun wine description. We've had we've had worse.
1: So, what was the actual type of wine? Was it? It's a Cabernet
0: Sauvignon Tempranillo.
1: 2020
0: yeah that was a hell of a year
1: From Washington
0: you know these grapes are hardy as hell actually okay you know how there were more animals and birds out in places that they normally wouldn't be because people just stopped leaving their houses yeah these grapes were like these are
1: pandemic grapes. they are the
0: purest pandemic grapes ever because they were so unfettered by like, human touch
1: 2021 probably be no okay <laughs> no it was like shut that shit down what are we cheers right.
0: into? um Ooh, cheers to my dad not needing anything serious at the er yay, yay.
1: cheers yeah, did you go to work that next day or I, were you like fuck that shit? okay
0: I, I went to work because I had a staff meeting in the morning. I did not shower. I put on like a baggy sweater and baggy pants and showed up for the meeting looking like absolute hell, feeling like hell. Cause I didn't get to bed You until basically like, like
1: walk into the meeting and be like, This is what happened. I'm leaving. I, I did the
0: meeting and then I, I I really I tried to like get work done at my cubicle and I was just kinda like doing the like, oh my god, I'm gonna fucking pass out here. So I walked around to everyone in the office. I was like, Are you gonna be here till so five? Do you mind if I work from home so at least I can just be in my comfy pants and be, like, gross and smelly, you know, on my own? Oh, yeah, okay, good, because I was with my dad in the ER until 2 a.m., and I am wrecked. I haven't even showered, and I'm gross. I feel like I'm leaving a little, tra- like, one of those Trail little of vapor signs. trails yeah. <laughs> behind me. Uh, and then I And then I napped on my break, which really helped. And it was nice; I didn't have to drive to go home on my break, so it was like a solid hour nap. Oh it's yeah, amazing. it was.
1: I worked from home. I worked from home on Thursdays, and I I ended up with a migraine, like an hour into work, mm-hmm. and it was so nice just being able to like message my boss and be like, "I'm a clock out and go lay down." Yeah, and if I start feeling better. I'll fuck back in yeah, and like luckily my boss was super chill about it she was just like yeah just let everyone else know
0: yeah thank you everyone for your your kind words on that post I felt bad like crap maybe I should have added the episode sooner but I did not anticipate getting a call from my mom can you take your father to the ER yeah Yeah. well it's not a big like if if you're busy I'm like mom no you're
1: like mom if he needs to go in It's unless
0: I'm already in the ER I am not too busy or if I'm drunk
1: Right, then I can't.
0: Yeah, which um, my mother was not drunk, but she had had a cocktail. And then my, my dad's legs swelled up really bad, and we were worried it was a blood clot or something because we'd been down that road before with me. And luckily it was just arthritis, like really I mean, horrible, painful sucks, arthritis, but-, but nothing that was going to like super serious but my mom my mom sits down she has her cocktail and then she sees my dad's leg is swollen even more she's like Jesus fucking Christ you are going to the ER and it was super funny because every time a nurse or a doctor asked my dad well you know your your leg's been hurting you for several days what made you come in now and he's like well I was kind of told I had to and like yeah my mom told like my mom gave him an order and he complied because he's in too much pain to say no
1: Right. Like at very least they'll give him something for his pain.
0: Well, we thought about it, but all they could really do was a shot of ibuprofen, like concentrate into his knee, which would only last six to eight hours. And he was, he was like, he was super tired. He was falling asleep in the wheelchair in the waiting room. And my mom kept calling me and being like, I want you to go home because you have work in the morning. I was like, I'm not going to leave my father by himself fading in and out of consciousness well, plus then, in like, the waiting room. Plus
1: if they bring him back and then they're like yeah there's nothing we can do what is he supposed to do? He was gonna get a cab and I'm
0: like fuck no. Here's the thing I decided like it got really late I'm like okay I'm at least gonna make sure he gets to a room because then he can like fall asleep there and I don't have to worry about someone like rolling off with him or something. Right. Uh, but then we got in there and they had already done the imaging and stuff while we were waiting. So they're able well, to pretty nice. quickly say like, hey, it's it's not a blood clot. We did an ultrasound. We did this. It's your arthritis is being a fucking bitch. I was like, OK, cool. I'll, I'll take you home. Fuck. That's awesome. Because I felt really bad about sending my fucking father home in a cab from the ER. Right. <laughs> Because my mom doesn't do the night driving anymore. She, it, it's, it's, yeah, my mom doesn't she either. Hates, she absolutely hates it. It was raining that night, and I'm like, even I don't like driving in this. So, yeah, but I appreciate everyone's, you know, like, oh, hope everything's okay and well wishes. Everything's fine. We're good. It just, like, kind of sucked, and I was very glad that I was able to be there and step up and help my dad out. And my both my parents. So, yeah. Yay. Yay. All right. Well, Kelly...
1: You're going first. Shit, am I? Yeah.
0: When did that happen?
1: Since when?
0: Oh, crap. You did the intro, didn't you? Yeah.
1: Fuck. I'm like, I'm pretty sure we discussed this before we started recording. Okay. Well. I mean, I can go first. No, I'll go first. It's a lot longer than yours. I
0: have my notes. We're just going to power through mine, and then I can just sip my wine and kind of like zone out during your story. It's fine. I'll just interject every now and then with a, whoa, fucking patriarchy, man. Jesus Christ. Honestly, I, I don't could don't know insert, if I want to go
1: second if you're not going to pay I attention. Could,
0: I could interject a Jesus Christ almost anywhere in either of our stories at and any given time. It would be 100% appropriate. I love it. Anyway, no, I will pay attention to your story, I promise, but then I just get to like relax right. and sip my wine. Which, by the way, this wine is really good. It's, it's more like- dry subtle for a Cabernet Sauvignon but it's good.
1: It's definitely a dry dry red which are not my favorite but it's good. I know
0: I I dig it though I mean okay I bought that box in the winter so probably 99% of the bottles in there are Cab Sauv's or Shiraz or something.
1: Like I said like it It tastes good. Yeah. It's okay to not drink your favorite wine. Yeah,
0: it's fine. Otherwise, I would just be chugging, you know, barefoot Moscato and Target Moscato at all times.
1: Yeah, because that's one of my, some of my favorite (laughs) wines.
0: Okay, so today I am covering Alila Walker. Oh, God. Oh, man, My, my computer went dark for a second. I was about to lose my goddamn mind. It's fine. So today I'm covering Alila Walker, who is also known as... The joy goddess of Harlem, which is fucking badass. So it's become a common trope in our stories for the women we cover to be overshadowed by the men in their lives. And this may be the first time that a woman recovering is not only overshadowed by another woman, but that woman is her own mother. Actually, I just realized that's a fucking lie because you cover Marie Curie's daughter. Little Curie, shit. Mm -hmm. Well, there goes my entire opening paragraph. It was so intense. Anyway, one of the few times a woman is overshadowed by her own mother. Alila Walker, born, uh, okay, I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing that right. Alila Walker, born Lilo McWilliams in 1885 to parents Moses McWilliams and Sarah Breedlove. Alila's father, yeah. It's an amazing last name. Uh, Alila's father, Moses, died when she was only two years old because the past was just chock full of death. Her mother, Sarah, moved them in with family in St. Louis, Missouri. And Alila's last name would come from her mother's third husband, Charles Joseph Walker. So her, mar- her, her mother got remarried after Moses died. They got divorced. She marries this third gentleman, uh, and they they both end up taking the last name Walker. I didn't need to get into like the husbands; they're not super important. Her mother would also go on to take the name Walker in her epic rebrand from Sarah Breedlove Love to Madam C J Walker. Yes, that Madam C J Walker Kelly. Mm-hmm. The second you were like free Love, I was like, don't you I'm fucking like, spoil it? I recognize it. that name. <laughs> So as we know from when Kelly covered Madam C.J. Walker in episode 47, everyone go check that shit out. Heck
1: yeah. That's actually
0: one of my favorite women you covered because I was so amazed by how, okay, just a super, super really quick rundown of my favorite part about Madam C.J. Walker other than her being a hashtag lady boss. At the time, there were no beauty products for black women because a lot of them had been enslaved and there and was no... People didn't give a shit. Yeah. And then so her coming up with beauty products for black women was a really big deal because it's mm-hmm. like a way of giving you back your humanity and
1: you be able to take ownership and care of your own body. Well, then not only doing that, but like making basically like an, a version of Avon out of it and Yeah, having, Except you know, it wasn't like,
0: bullshit.
1: You know, well, and I just love that. Yeah. Like she was like, guys, my products work for our type of hair. There's nothing else on the market for it. Go yeah. forth and tell your friends.
0: Yeah. And I'll, I'll get a little into that, but just that whole like reclamation of humanity. I'm like, I never really, I never thought about that part of it. I'm like, God damn, that's amazing. So she became a revolutionary beauty icon by creating products specifically for black hair, something that no one was really doing at the time. She trained as a hairstylist, created products and trained other black women to style hair, do cosmetology and sell her products, helping them find a career and financial independence during a time when white beauty schools wouldn't teach black people. Boom. Knock that shit off.
1: Right. You're like, I'm glad that didn't stick because that was terrible yeah. and people were terrible.
0: So Madam C.J. Walker is often credited as one of the first black self-made millionaires. Um, that 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 title is kind of up in the air so whether it's true or not she was one of the first at the very least um so to say that she slayed was a total understatement fucking icon badass amazing and because of her success Alila was able to attend Knoxville College in Tennessee before joining her mother's business to become hashtag mini lady boss
1: so (laughs) mini lady boss
0: so if you think that this was like a mommy gave me a job situation so I actually have to learn anything that's not what's going on at all. Alila Rand uh, ran the East Coast operations out of, a, of two brownstone buildings in Harlem. Wow. And one of the buildings was home to the Walker Hair Parlor, while the other was the uh, Leela College of Beauty Culture. And here, aspiring cosmetologists and stylists would be trained in their craft. Because again, white schools are not fucking doing this, and then have the ability to begin working in one of the many Walker Beauty parlors. So it, it reminds me of how Mayo has their own, they do this for a lot of things, but mm-hmm. they have their own phlebotomy training program. Yep. And if you graduate from it, then you can get a job at Mayo. So not only are you paying Mayo and giving them money for the training, but then they get to teach you the way they want you to do it. And then they're generating people. To be phlebotomist if all their the own. fucking yep. time. Yep. So I mean, honestly, it, it works out for everyone. So Alila helped her mother found the Madam C. J. Walker Manufacturing Company in 1906. So she was a she was a big part of the business. She wasn't just like,
1: mummy money, please. Right, one of those like, put my name down, then I work for you, and then just yeah. pay me. No,
0: I just I just want but the I'm title. Not do anything. I want the title without any of the responsibility. Yeah, I want the illusion of power. So when Mam C.J. Walker died in 1919 of a, I believe it was a brain hemorrhage. It was a bummer. Alila became president of the entire goddamn company. Boom. Alila had a fresh take on the company, employing creative marketing techniques. And one such campaign was a comp, okay, this, this is going to sound weird, but just bear with me. A competition among prominent ministers in 1924 where the grand prize was a trip to the Holy Land. Not sure what any of that means or like who prominent ministers were or like what holy land right. we're talking about. Well, apparently no one else does because I tried to find out like, OK, what was the specifics of this to break it down and be like, where like, what what was she going for? What was the aim? You know, what the fuck is the holy land? Because is it Jerusalem? Is it I like I don't know. <laughs> I feel like everyone has a different holy land. Um, but everywhere I found mention of this, it was like, it was the same thing, copied and pasted. Yep. So, I when that but I want to include it cause it's at its very base core. This is a super common practice it, for companies to host competitions or even sweepstakes and giveaways with big trips on the line. And she's doing this back in the 1920s. I'm not saying she was the first to do it. I'm just saying Like. This is still around, and she's like, let's fucking do this. It wasn't something her mother had done. Alila herself was quite a sight. She was six fucking feet tall and always impeccably dressed. Six
1: fucking feet
0: tall. I know. Like it actually, she's Kina. Yeah. Because Kina is six feet tall, and I felt so short. <laughs> So she was also frequently seen wearing a turban, which became a signature part of her look and also ensured that she stood out wherever she went. Like she walks into a room and you can't ignore her because she's this six foot tall turban goddess who's just like, I know you're all looking at me
1: good. Right.
0: (laughs) When Alila wasn't running the company, she was living her best life. I also want to just clarify, she had other people who were running like day to day, So she wasn't doing this all by herself. Credit where credit is due. It's probably why she was able to live her best life on the side. As a wealthy, prominent figure in Harlem, Alila rubbed elbows with some prominent figures of Harlem and Greenwich, particularly in the aunts. But also, like, royalty, politicians, bankers, like, name someone that seems like they have a fancy title. She was, like, tight with them. Hmm. Alila developed a love of classical music through her mother, who was a trained opera singer and organist. And even before moving to Harlem, the center of black culture at the time, Alila had the opportunity to meet and hang out with prominent artists like Scott Joplin, who is known as the king of ragtime. Wow. And this was back in St. Louis. So like yeah. where she's growing up, she's already, cause her mom is making a name for herself and like doing the damn thing. Yeah. So that was cool. So throughout the 1920s when Harlem was rocking hard, Alila hosted lavish parties that include politicians, artists, and socialites. And anyone else that seems fancy. Today, it would be a bunch of fake Instagram influencers who are terrible at Photoshop. So everyone's pinkies are like fully extended here. One frequent guest, Langston Hughes. Ever heard of him? He uh-huh. nicknamed Alila the Joy Goddess of Harlem. Oh, which I'm like, oh. okay, amazing nickname. But then coming from Langston fucking Hughes,
1: yeah, like how I'd be like, I
0: can die right now. I don't have to do. I can be a piece of shit for the rest of my life because Langston Hughes dubbed me the Joy Goddess of Harlem, and everything I do from here on out is garbage. Right, I'd be Be done. I
1: peaked. (laughs) But before we
0: start thinking that these were like really stuffy affairs, let's turn to another one of our historical heroes. Mabel Hampton, who I covered in episode 62. There are so many fucking crossovers in this. Mabel was a lesbian activist who played a critical role in documenting queer life in the 20s, 30s. Like she was interviewed in the 80s and a lot of her interviews are recorded in the lesbian archives. Hmm. But it's like, hey, by the way, we didn't just come out of nowhere in 2015. We've been here and we were living our goddamn lives. So she was, she was an important part of documenting, you know, what it was like to, especially to be a black lesbian or a black queer person at the time, which, you know, even more marginalized because you have less privilege to like squeak by and have people just be like, oh, they're just like friends or it's fine. Don't worry about it. So Mabel attended Alila's parties and documented that these, these like shindigs would last for days. Damn. Days. Giving a new meaning to the end time question mark. Yeah. Like
1: 8 p.m. to question mark. Which usually means like <laughs> I would say like 1 or 2 a.m. Yeah like
0: when everyone gets too tired no, and leaves. two it's days like, later. No no we we power nap and shift so the party never actually stops.
1: No you all you all sleep at the same time and then you just wake up and party. Yeah
0: exactly. So these are also just like a bacchanal of drinking nudity and open sex, like it was. Wait,
1: what did you call it?
0: A bacchanal. Nice, yeah. Nice thought, use of words. I had to look up how to spell it, but I knew it. I love you. <laughs> Today I learned Emily has an has a vocabulary that expands past Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs>
1: God damn it!
0: Fuck, man. Jesus. So other than being the wildest parties that we all wish we could have gone to. Fuck yeah. Like seriously, Alila's gatherings offered a safe space for the queer community, particularly the black queer community.
1: Right.
0: Guests were free to express themselves without having to adhere to stringent gender norms and heterosexual culture. They're like, no, just go off. And they did for days. Be (laughs) you. Be you. You be you, babe. So Mabel recalled, and this was in one of her 1980s interviews. And I'm just imagining old Mabel looking back at this like these wild parties she was going to in the 1920s, just being like, oh shit, that stuff was tight. So she said, there was men and women, women and men and men and men. We had a lovely time and stayed all night till three or four the next day. <laughs> Everyone did whatever they wanted to do. They want to make love, they made love. Oh, It was marvelous. (laughs) So Mabel would like go to these events with her girlfriend and like they'd party their fucking tits off. It was amazing. So even though Alila was a well-known patron of the arts and helped to foster the Harlem queer community, as NPR or National Public Radio puts it, she was not known to be a lesbian or bisexual.
1: She just supported them.
0: That being said, I don't think we should count her out. Uh, I was a little devastated when I got to this part in my research because I found her on lists of, like, badass queer women you don't know. Yeah. And I was like, Madam C.J. Walker's daughter was bi? Fuck yes! Like, already writing it. Already coming up with the title. And then I get to this part in the research and I'm like, fuck
1: you! <laughs>
0: How dare That's you? That's happened to me
1: before. Ow. yeah, Before, too.
0: Well, we've done it the opposite. Like, um... Way in the early days when you covered Josephine Baker, didn't know until after that she was by.
1: Right, I, yeah, I covered wasn't um, one
0: of the one of the women who was a part of the Edinburgh Seven in episode two. It never mentioned that she was a lesbian who had a long time same sex yeah. partner, and I was like, my the only my only excuse for that is like, well, I wasn't just covering her. I was covering well, like I seven mean, women in
1: this event. That's but, why I think, but this it's is why it's important we highlight this month, yeah, because. The erasure is real. And it's so prevalent.
0: Even when we did uh, Billie Holiday, Mm -hmm. there was some coded language. We were like, wait, I know what that means. She was bi. Thank you. So despite so basically NPR is like, we don't know. That she was a lesbian or bisexual. We don't know definitively, but I don't think that we should count her out. Many people don't label themselves and many historical figures have had their sexualities erased or obscured. And I think it's incredibly telling that she socialized with, supported, and helped foster the queer Harlem community. Yeah. And she's having these parties. She's like... Just be gay. I don't like just fucking go off. Be be yourself.
1: It's normal.
0: Like, I'm sorry. You think she's just like standing in a window Gatsby style where everyone is having the best time of their lives? No, she is in the shit. (laughs) So just because we don't have documentation of her sexuality, I don't think that means we can default to thinking she was straight. Because that also implies that, well, if we don't know she was gay, she must have been straight. Which is not the way to think about it. At best, her sexuality is... Unknown, but I think we have a lot of clues, right? A lot of context clues. So I, I still feel comfortable co- covering her for this. And even like today, labels can be a very comforting thing. They can be very validating. Some people don't like them or don't want to use them because they're like, eh, nothing really feels quite right, or I just kind of want to be me without labels or even the expectations that come with labels. And I think. I think Alila was just um, like, yeah, no, I'm rich. I'm a business bitch and I'm I'm going to do do my thing. I'm a party. I don't have to explain it to anyone. So Alila would host these parties uh, at one of her many estates, most well-known called the Dark Tower, which sounds foreboding, but in the context, it sounds really sexy. So this was a massive townhouse on West 136th Street, and this building became a fixture in the Harlem Renaissance and queer scene, which were not mutually exclusive, obviously. It wasn't like, okay, queer people over here, black artists over here. It's, it, everyone's just hanging out together. Right. Right. She wasn't just hosting parties either. She converted the dark tower into a salon so that young artists could have a place to hone their craft network with each other and even hosted events like poetry reading. So they could like get their work out there, which is so important. And she would later write having no talent or gift, but a love and a keen appreciation for art. The dark tower was my contribution and I love that because that's how I feel about modeling. Like I have no, other than writing, I have no artistic bent to me whatsoever, but I love art. I love the artistic community and I want to support them. Not that I'm volunteering. I'm getting paid. Like, come on, that's hard work. But I, I like being able to support that, that part of it, you know? Right. And she's like, yeah, I'm. I'm not an artist, but I can support the arts in my own way. One of the her other estates called Villa Luaro. I'm just making that fancy. Uh, which was known for hosting the exotic art Alila Alila had collected from her world travels. Which is great. Right. She yeah, while all this is going on, she's also jet setting like it's nobody's business. So this was also a common hangout for artists in the queer community. So like she's got all these estates around. She's always throwing these massive, massive parties. Like Hundreds, if not thousands of invitations are going out for one of these parties. It's nuts. So like I said, she traveled all over the world, including to Ethiopia, where she became one of the only Westerners ever to visit the Empress Zuditu Hmm. or Zauditu. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but like, that was a big deal. Like, Westerners did not visit this woman. She's like, what's up, Empress? Let's hang so at some point, uh, Alil- Al- I keep when I say A'Lelia, that might actually be the correct way to say it. I may have been saying her name wrong this whole time. I'm going to commit to Alila, And everyone just hate me. It's fine. Um. So she adopted her daughter, May Walker. Don't know when. Couldn't find it. May Walker doesn't have a wiki page even, so... But she do on our daughter and even when her daughter got married in 1923, Alila sent out over 9000 invitations, not only to every state in the country, wow. but across the world.
1: She's like, y'all coming.
0: Yeah. Y'all get in here. My daughter is getting married and it's a big fucking deal. And then, of course, she shows up to the wedding in a beautiful gown with her turban and her six foot tall goddess self. Right. Just she's being like, like, bitches, I'm not trying to upstage the bride. Like it's just she who she I am. Now, or she's probably in like another
1: three inch heels. <laughs> yes. <so> she's just
0: <laughs> fucking power boss. Yeah. Yeah. People people get lost. Hey, if we get separated, just go to Alila. Just find her in yep, the crowd. She, she's she's going to be sticking yeah. up above everyone else. So throughout her life, she would marry three times, all to men, which of course does not invalidate and you know the possibility she was queer. Uh, and all of her marriages ended in divorce, which doesn't surprise me because I feel like a lot of these super wealthy, high powered women like just us kind of like go through three or four husbands. She was also known to associate with a one Josephine Baker, who Kelly covered in episode four. Yeah.
1: Ever heard of her? <laughs> You're just gonna make a list of women I've covered within your story. I there
0: is there is I don't re- exactly remember where they are, but I know I credited every single two, episode. Yeah. yeah, well we have we have Mam C J Walker, we have Josephine Baker, and then we have my gal Mabel Hampton. So yep. we have three women we three have covered before. Facts. Yeah, Woot. it's never happened, and this isn't surprising because Josephine Baker was a notable bi black dancer and definitely a part of Alila's usual circle of friends. And here was, here was the funny thing. You know, we were talking about with Billie Holiday, how there was like that coded language where it's like, wait a minute. I know what you're saying without saying it. Whenever I found her mentioned in connection with Josephine Baker, the language was always kind of vague. She hung around with her, was associated with her, accompanied Josephine. You know, like, you know, because history hates lovers. Yeah. So I'm like, I don't know, her three headcanon, They They... They Probably at least made out. They at least, like, got yeah. into some heavy pain. Something went down. Because I need that. So in the 1920s, uh, it's a great time. It's a wild time for Lila and Harlem. Things are just going off. But you know what came after the 20s? The fucking 30s. With hits such as the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, and Hitler's rise to power, yeah,
1: boom, a, lot, boom, a bunch boom. of fun stuff. Yeah, you know, it was like a one-two, one-two knockout.
0: Yeah, it, it was like everyone partied so hard in the twenties that the thirties came around. I was like, we gotta even this shit out with some right. misery. <laughs> so the Great Depression hit the Walker Manufacturing Company hard. And Alila was forced to sell much of the art that she'd collected during her travels just to like keep things afloat. But then in 1932, uh, Villa Luaro too had to be auctioned off, which I, I find so sad because she's selling the art in this estate. And then she has to sell the estate itself. But on the bright side, Alila didn't have to see the estate being sold off because in 1931, while at a friend's birthday party, She suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and died at only 46 years old. The cerebral hemorrhage had been brought on by hypertension, also known as high blood pressure. Seriously, get your shit checked out, guys. The same thing that killed her mother. Spooky. I hate it. So upon Alila's death, her daughter May, as Alila had done before her, took over her mother's business. Yay. And like I said, I couldn't find shit about May. Now, if she died of hypertension, I am going to go through the roof. How awful would that be? Alila's funeral was much like her life. Lavish, memorable, and packed. Over 11,000 people filed past her casket, and the guest list for the invite-only super intimate funeral was over 1,000 people. Yeah, You know, just keep it small, keep it simple. Soup's understated. Yeah, a thousand people. Easy. Yeah. So Langston Hughes, who is obviously a fan, uh, he wrote and read a poem for her funeral, which read, So all who loved laughter and joy and light, let your prayers be as roses for this queen of the night. I also read a poem when I die. (laughs) That's beautiful. He also remarked, That was really the end of the gay times in the new Negro era in Harlem. He's like, this whole era that we were all enjoying, they died with Alila. They fucking died with her. She was interred in Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx next to her mother, which is beautiful. Like a she. So experimental black playwrights Sterling Houston and Larry Neal wrote a musical called Alila about her. Uh, there was a Netflix miniseries called Self-Made Inspired by the Life of Ooh. Madam C.J. Walker in which Alila is portrayed by Tiffany Haddish. Love it. I I honestly, maybe I'm a bad history lover. I don't jive with uh, dramas or like historical dramas. Yeah. I think they're great. I really do because they get people interested in the story and give it more exposure but I hate the idea of watching something dramatized and then having to go back and like unlearn or relearn what I just watched because it's like, oh, half of it was bullshit. Or, you know, like I want to watch like a documentary and learn the facts versus having to go back and do extra homework. I don't know. Right. I'm like, I want to get the story the first time. And I love a good documentary. So that's cool. And that's awesome. I'm glad she's getting some more attention along with her mom. But what really sticks out to me in regards to her legacy is that she was a badass queer black lady boss who used her money and power to elevate other queer black artists. And this is a narrative that we do not get a lot. When we talk about queer people of color, there is a huge focus on oppression. And that's a part of many of these stories. Like it'd be in it'd be disingenuous to just skip over and be like, everything was great. However, it's also really important to acknowledge and celebrate black queer excellence because it not only gives us a fuller picture of our history, but provides amazing representation for people today. You know, and it, it's like, hey, Alila Walker fucking did the damn thing. I'm going to do the damn thing. Right. But do, oh, God, I'm blanking on her name. Do you remember that? female black attorney I covered. I want to say her name was like Edna or something, but she helped nail Lucky Luciano to the wall. And there was uh was it boardwalk? I oh, don't know, go back and listen to that episode mm. cuz I actually explain it. But there was a there was a historical drama show and she was not featured in it, but there was like a black female attorney and it was kind of like her proxy, you know, and the internet lost their minds because they're like, a black woman wouldn't be in that position. Actually, she fucking was. was.
1: Like, calm the fuck down. Yeah,
0: yeah. So you're just forcing diversity. It's like, people existed. A whole rainbow cornucopia of people have existed for fucking ever. We just don't get to hear about them. Right. So shut the fuck up. Sorry, I got really angry. But yeah, that is the story of Alila Walker The Joy Goddess of Harlem. I also, I almost titled this like mother, mother, like daughter, but then Langston Hughes called her the Joy Goddess of Harlem and I was like, oh, fuck yes. Fuck yes. But yeah, that's my story. So thank you for joining me on that bacchanal of like amazing queer art party, living it up, lady boss life. That sounds great. Thank you. Who are you whining
1: about today? Vita Satchville West. Vita what's Satchville West? Yes. Okay. So, Vita was born in her family home. It's one of those where the <laughs> the, the home has a name. It was called Knoll, K N O L E. Oh. Um, this, she knows what's up. I think it's in
0: England. I apparently didn't write it down. I still need to come up with a name for my tiny little house so I can just be like, oh, this is my estate. This is my estate. Flaversham. Oh, so it's in Kent. Flaversham
1: Acres. It's in Kent, which is in England. Yes. Um, so this home was given to Thomas Sackville by Elizabeth the First in the 16th century. Jesus fucking so, Christ. Like, it is old and been in the family forever. Yeah. Uh, in fact, her her father was a baron, was Baron and Baron. So her parents were Baron and Baroness Sackville. Okay. She was the only child of said Baron and Baroness. He was the third Baron, and her mother's name was Victoria, which will come back around. Okay. And they were cousins. We're just gonna. Yep. Sign of the times. <laughs> Yeah, so, I tell
0: you what, it's a sign of the times. <laughs>
1: That's a <so> weird. <laughs> it was like slightly oh, don't you Midwestern. Know?
0: Don't you know.
1: Um, that was my favorite
0: thing to say in Texas whenever people asked where we were from. We would say Minnesota. And every time they had. The Minnesota. But no, here's the thing. Every time they repeated Minnesota. And I love being like, oh, you betcha. Oh, don't you know.
1: <laughs> this is in 1892. She was born March 9th, (gasps) 1892. That's
0: the same year Lizzie Borden killed her parents. You're such a
1: weirdo. Dun, dun, dun. So although her parents' marriage was initially happy, uh, they kind of drifted apart, you know, as as what happens, um, to the point where her father actually took on a mistress who came to live with them at Knoll. She was an opera singer. Um, So Vita was actually born Victoria Mary Sackville West, um, but went through Vita to distinguish herself from her mother because her mother's name was also Victoria. Yeah. Um, and they were um English aristocrats, obviously. If you obvi- haven't figured that out yet, <laughs> um, but so that meant inheritance customs were followed, meaning Vita would never inherit Noel from her family because they didn't pass things down, but f- through women traditionally. Jesus Christ.
0: Was uh, that so an appropriate she,
1: place to say that? Did I yes. get it right? Yep, you're good. <laughs> and so she knew that, and she that that was kind of a source of bitterness that Vita would carry with her throughout her life. She did have a, a younger brother, and mm-hmm. he would get um, bequeathed Noel and the title.
0: And I bet he um, was just a total dick. So
1: I bet he was like, He became the fourth Baron I'm going to be a Baron. I'm going to make pizza. Right. So while Vita's father brought home... A lover, like literally brought him home. Vita's mother was just as promiscuous. Yeah. uh, And she had a wide range of famous lovers, including financier JP Morgan. Oh, shit. (laughs) And Sir John Murray Scott. In fact, she was so close with Sir John Murray Scott um, that, like... Vita would spend time at his apartments and stuff like so. Like it was very clear was that like this a was like second one hundred percent. And Vita would often like go to Paris because that's where he lived, and like she was already super fluent in French, but like yeah. she would go so she had practice. But like so, basically, both of her parents were seeing other people. Okay, was, my, she grew up in a household where that was very common. If my mom ever gets a boyfriend. I want him to, like, have a cool
0: estate in the, Mexi- south, of, the yeah. south of France. Well, no, because I want to practice mi español. Practicar mi español. South of Spain? No. Why not? No, because Spain is a different kind of Spanish than, like, That's true. in but South America and Mexico. Yeah. Well, don't, don't go throwing I that know. shit around. Liz is screaming right now. Oh, Our yeah. Spanish teacher friend is, like... How fucking dare! But which type
1: of Spanish are you learning right now?
0: I think it's like Mexican.
1: Okay. Um. So Vita was initially brought up at home by a governess. Typical, mm-hmm. but she did later attend Helen Wolfe's School for Girls. It was a day school in Mayfair, um, and this is where she would meet some of her first loves, Violet and Rosamund. <gasps>
0: she has a flower theme going Apparently. on. I love it. Um.
1: So besides like a few of the girls in her class that she kind of fell for, she didn't really befriend a lot of the local children and actually ha- um, found it kind of hard to make friends. Um, no one really is sure why, but her biographers characterize her childhood as one filled by loneliness and isolation.
0: Aww, and um, she was just a
1: little weirdo that didn't know how to make connections with apparently. other people
0: because her parents were basically absent. She was raised by a governess and her mom's
1: boyfriend. Right um she did have some roma lineage um you know so oh. she was part gypsy no but this, well okay i i, I completely it understand says, no, what it you're says saying. gypsy in yeah. my notes
0: no and i understand that and i just want to point out for our listeners we are saying that in quotes because yep. that's how they referred to it that is not what no, we say Ro- anymore roma is what we say yes okay i quick disclaimer before we get roasted
1: no, yeah, that and that's how that's how Vita said it is yes. that she had a passion for the gypsy, quote unquote. Yes. ways and she really picked up on that culture even though it was a few generations back. Like it wasn't like her mom was was I Roma. Bet that was it something was like her few, family tried to leave behind. Oh, 100% in, yeah. in a barren position. Um yeah. but she was viewed as hot-blooded, heart-led, dark and romantic. Um and she had a very stormy nature and she had a lot of love affairs and this was a strong theme in her writing she would, she was a writer and she would often visit Roma camps and she felt herself to be one of them even though it was yeah. a little bit farther back in her lineage she really like connected with that part of her history
0: yeah um she's not really digging cool. the digging the baron baroness lifestyle No, you know what I like is that it, she sounds like as a friend she might be a little volatile like 100%. I don't want to get And cute. a lover well'll get into that yeah but I don't want to be like too deep in the drama but I definitely want to like be a coffee date where she's like let me tell you what I did right. this weekend and I'm just there sipping up that tea like give it to me tell me what you were doing
1: Vita because I know it was wild <laughs> right you're like tell me everything tell me everything so by the age of 18 Vita had written eight full-length novels and five plays jesus christ um, all unpublished she she herself would describe her herself her childhood and growing up as rough and secret frequent she was frequently punished for quote unquote wrestling in the hu- with the hall boy uh she was fond of her pocket knife and it um inspired to start writing at the age of 12 by the novel sereno de Bergerac. Oh, Cyrano
0: Serrano. de Bergerac. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the one where the guy has the really long nose, and he, but he has a great yeah. like he is the. So he's a, he he good with words. Yeah, um,
1: <laughs> so that yeah, that inspired her to start writing. Um, she would be debuted at age of eighteen, as debited. she said, debuted. Yeah, debuted. They booted. They booted. 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 <laughs> booted. Rockin' everywhere. Um, but so she entered society at the age of 18. As Twerking. She, as she said, quote unquote, four balls a week and luncheons every day. And I can just see her saying it with like an eye roll. Yeah. And then I'm sitting there sipping my coffee, like, God Ugh. damn it, Vita. I don't right? Okay. I, I love hearing about your drama, but you're pissing me off a little. Can you at least take me to some of these? Right. She was viewed as a refined beauty and took after her mother in attracting a lot of very prominent admirers. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was wooed by so some of the people she uh, that attempted to woo her were <laughs> attempted wooing Orazio Pucci, who is the son of a Flo, like a distinguished Florentine family, Lord Granby, who would later become a duke. Uh, Lord, you're going to say dude, uh, Lord Lasalle. So if you've watched The Crown. Um, it was like the mustachioed LaSalle's from that okay. uh among a ton of others, like notable dudes were climbing all over, over that, Earth. yes, yeah. during this time, however, um, Vita was in a romance with one of her schoolhood friends named rosamond that i I developed. Or I mentioned not <laughs> Vita, Vita wrote in her diary that she, that Rosamund was quote the neat little girl who came to play with me when Dada went to South Africa. Oh, Dada, going um, off to South Africa as Dadas are wont to do. Yeah, right. Leaving your child behind with your wife's boyfriend. So this affair in particular was a little bit quieter in Vita's life, and actually, it, it didn't really come out until. Vita's son, more on him later, his name's Nigel. Nigel, mm-hmm. um, learned about this affair when after his mother's death, he found this um, locked bag in her room and like opened it. And it was like this huge, sensational, salacious confession that Vita had written while she was still alive. Oh, my God. And so like this was one of the affairs people didn't learn about until later. But I, OK, you're saying it was this huge, salacious confession. I hope it was the most tame shit that we have ever heard of. Probably not. But back
0: then they're like, lesbians?
1: Probably not. (laughs) Just knowing where the story goes. This is like eight pages, so we we got a lot to get through. (laughs) Also, have you
0: ever seen that? um, It's kind of a meme where it's like, name something that's classy if you're rich, but trashy if you're poor. Leaving your daughter with your boyfriend. Classy if you're rich, trashy if you're poor.
1: Yep. It's like, you're still... (laughs) It's just one of those things where the implication is very percent Yeah. So Vida and Rosamond developed a very quick intimacy. They had a lot of time alone together, mainly because back then lesbians weren't a thing. So chaperones, you know, I'm saying that jokingly, guys. People did not think
0: people we've talked about this. People did not think women
1: could be hot for each other. No, they didn't think it was possible. It was dumb
0: roommates, colleagues, anything Anything but but lovers.
1: lovers. History is lovers! I like that you turned that metal (laughs) note. That would be a great metal song. Anyways, so, and Vita herself had no concept of homosexuality at the time like this and that's and the reason we know that is through Vita's own writing mm-hmm. like there are a lot of letters and stuff that we can we can view so you're gonna hear me saying stuff like that and it's because we actually know Vita's standpoint which is super rare that's super interesting
0: also to see how this this girl and the woman is growing up she's from a prominent family right. and she has zero representation.
1: Exactly, and it's also very like interesting. no
0: parental guidance whatsoever, right? And her just kind of figuring it out on her own, which is sad in its own way, but it also her—it seems like she had that freedom to kind of right.
1: explore. Well, and she viewed her instincts toward Rosamond as ordinary as was her penchant for playing with pocket knives and walking through bogs. Love it. So it's just another part of who she was. Yeah. you know, like it was a, it was kind of like an after-school hobby. I also like
0: that, even though she didn't have representation for same-sex relationships, she wasn't getting the negativity surrounding right. same-sex relationships.
1: So she's like, "Well, and I, I mean, don't know. people it's didn't really know, you know what I mean? Yeah." Um, and she would often, in her writing, compare Rosamond's company to that of the the men that would court her in society, as if and radical thought here, everybody. All companions were created equal and comparable. Gender was immaterial. Apples to apples, bitches. damn, I love her. And that's literally how she wrote. So she, she apples said- Apples to apples, bitches? No. Okay. The, that, that everyone was comparable and equal. So yeah. one of her quotes is, quote, Even my liaison with Rosamond was, in a sense, superficial. I mean that it was almost exclusively physical, as to be frank. She always bored me as a companion. I was very fond of her. However, she had a sweet nature, but she was quite stupid. Harold wasn't. So we're gonna okay. get the Harold here in a second. I'm just gonna say this right now. Most people have had that
0: relationship where they're like, "Man, they're hot and the sex is great," but I cannot stand them as a person. Oh yeah,
1: <laughs> yep. So Rosamond and Vita's um, secret relationship, because like I said, this this one actually was pretty secret, um, yep. would come to an end when Vita would marry. Boo, because you know, as as you know, affairs often should right or do. Um, but during this time, Vita actually had another affair also going on. We'll get to her husband in a minute, but okay. I need to talk about her other affair because her other affair was actually a lot more deeply involved, and this was with Violet, who I briefly mentioned earlier. she's got a garden of women that she's planting. <laughs> yeah. um, so this sexual relationship began when they were in their teens. So, like, why mm-hmm. they were still at school before she was eighteen. And this would strongly influence both of them um later on. and they would actually both later marry and become writers. just oh my God, so people know. Um so that that we'll get more into Violet later, but that's a sub note of what's going on when Vita gets married. So mm-hmm. she was with Rosamond and with Violet. yep. and then her and Rosamond stop seeing each other when she gets married. Hey, if you haven't agreed to be exclusive go off right like that's why communication is so important you shouldn't make assumptions so harold nicholson courted vita for 18 months he was a young diplomat um and she found him to be and this is this is her describing him a secretive character and she really liked that and i think i think it's she doesn't like being bored yeah no you know she's already kind
0: of kind of a wild child particularly by cultural standards she's chilling in bogs wrestling with boys in the hall and
1: Playing, playing with the pocket, pocket knife. knives.
0: And I'm sure it was really boring to have all these like wealthy, rich, well-known men who were
1: just like, Marry me. She's like, Fucking A, you're desperate. Right.
0: Calm down. Exactly. Make me work
1: for it a little. So she writes that the wooing between her and Harold was actually entirely chase. And throughout the 18 months, they didn't even so much as kiss. Wow. Part of me wonders if he was like, okay, I need to keep her interest. Don't kiss her, don't kiss her, don't kiss her, don't kiss her, don't kiss her. Don't kiss, you know, like. Well, don't I feel like the little slut over here? No, no same. <laughs> um, so at the age of 21, um, this is 1913 ish, uh, Vita would marry Harold Nicholson. Um, it, they got married in the private chapel that was on her family's grounds because, of course, they're rich and have a private fucking chapel. Yep. Um, Vita's parents were super opposed to this to this marriage because they viewed um, Harold as penniless because he only made about an annual income of 250 pounds at the time. I do not know what that is. Didn't look it up. Didn't Wait, care. How, like 250 full stop or 250,000? Nope, 250 full stop. I'm not even...
0: I bet it's a lot more than we're thinking, though. Right. Yeah. Well,
1: I mean, it's still low because it's an annual income. And it's that, like that's what he I was, was thinking. He was a diplomat, but it was like he was like the third something. I'll get into it a little bit. Yeah. OK. But so like they weren't very happy. Oh, it's literally the next line. He was the third secretary to the at the British embassy in Constantinople. And his father um had been made like a peer. Like so like been. I think that means like he was like accepted into upper society even though maybe um, his under queen didn't... victoria exactly okay. um Man, so two people have to die just for him to be secretary Yeah, what a loser <laughs> so just to put this in context of why her family thought he was pen- penniless another one of vita suitors lord granby who i mentioned before mm-hmm. had an annual income of a hundred thousand pounds owned vast lakers of land and was heir to the title the duchy of rutland the so, duchy of Rutland. So he, he, Rut, Rutland. So R- he would he would be a duke. When he when his father died, he would inherit the duchy of Rutland and become a duke. I mean, I'm no gold digger, but I'm just going to say I 250 yeah,
0: a year versus 100,000 a year. And all this other shit. I don't have to know how much that is in modern day money to be like, holy fucking crap.
1: So I think one of the reasons that uh, Vita maybe married um, Harold was because the couple had a completely open relationship.
0: There and you I go. think that
1: was a very big thing for Vita like she didn't want to be you know like held back. So V both Vita and her husband would participate in same-sex relationships both before during and during their relationship as well as relations with each other. So they were both bisexual. Mm-hmm. Um, Vita saw herself as psychologically divided into two. One side of her personality was more feminine, soft, and submissive and attracted to men, while the other side of her personality was more masculine, hard, aggressive, and attracted to women. hmm So she, like, literally viewed herself almost as two people. Well...
0: I think that's an interesting house of a whole. I think that's an interesting way for her to look at it because especially nowadays we have terms like bi which is you um you're sexually attracted to two or more genders or pan which is you know more than one gender. Yep. And she's like, "Well, this is a very binary society I'm living in where men do this, mm-hmm. women do this, and so there's half of me that feels like a man towards women and half of me that it feels, feels like, like a woman, a woman towards, towards man." man. And I don't know the way she just kind of described the apples to apples. I it immediately made me think pansexual.
1: Yeah, I think she would be too. That the, she doesn't. The gender, gender does not matter. Yeah, I agree with you. I definitely agree with you. And I think um, her husband was a little bit more maybe on the asexual spectrum. Okay, because Harold, while he would go on to have a series of relationships with um, men, all of whom were his intellectual equals, that was mm-hmm. a big thing for him. Um, but he. Through Vita's writings, from what he said, he viewed the physical element of any of its relationships as like secondary. He didn't really care. He wasn't a super passionate lover. To him, the sex was just kind of there. And Vita wrote about it as as pleasurable as a quick visit to a picture gallery between trains. That's how her husband viewed sex. So I think he was more on the asexual spectrum.
0: Yeah, like it was it was some. It wasn't the main event for no, him. It, and it like, wasn't something he needed. It was part of it, needed. but he didn't care.
1: Yeah. But like, yeah. He, he wanted the intellectual stimulation. He didn't care about the physical stimulation. Yeah.
0: And I, I I, get that as someone who's not like the most sexual human being on the face of the right. planet. I'm like, oh yeah, like, okay, going to share a little too much, had too much wine. It's about, for me, it's about the person and sharing yeah, that with them 100%. versus the actual, like, I, I don't sex. need sex. Yeah. I'm, I can go yeah. forever without it.
1: I got myself. I just, I got the internet, bitch. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so Harold would follow in his father's career and at various times be a diplomat, a journalist, a broadcaster, a member of parliament, author of several biographies and novels, and just like very, he kind of bounced around from thing to thing, but mm-hmm. like was never jobless. Um, they would get married and live in Seahanger, which is a suburb in Constantinople, because that's like who he worked for that is currently i guess i don't even know if it's istanbul today nobody um, knows but the turks yeah turkey i think is what it is today um but it's in that area um so constantinople was the capital of the ottoman empire which yeah is basically Turkey or Istanbul was Turkey? And Constantinople.
0: I know <laughs> du- du- du-
1: du- 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 I don't know the words. That's but what's the been tune going through my head. In your head forever. Welcome to my hell. Um. So, Vita absolutely loved Constantinople, but she did not love the duties of being a diplomat's wife. Yeah, that sucks. Um. During this time, she did kind of attempt to like wear the mantle, and as she said, quote unquote be the part of the correct and adoring wife to a brilliant young diplomat and that was written by her sarcastically yes. like that's not something she wanted to do she would however during this time become pregnant and in the summer of 1914 the couple would return to England to ensure that she could, she she could give birth in a british hospital just cuz their healthcare was a little bit better yeah i get that um the fa- when they moved back to england they they moved to 182 ebury street in balgravia um, and bought Long Barn in Kent as a country house because, of course, rich people just fucking... I want a country house. Dude, in Minnesota, we have cabins. We have, cab- I we have cabin. cabins. I want a cabin. I just want a second house just to be cool. Okay, um, here, here's the thing. We need to get a bunch of ladies
0: together, Boston marriage style, all going on a cabin, like I our own isolated that. little timeshare. Like,
1: I have friends that talk about it that are like, oh, I'm going for, like, my knitting weekend with my gal pals, and, like, they all bring, like... Random shit projects and just go away for a weekend and drink wine. And I'm like, why do I not have this in my life yet? Why? Okay, why don't we do this? Why don't we do this in our life? We did just go to Texas. That's true. We're going to plan something new. Instead of knitting, we
0: got blown up in winter museums. We're
1: going to plan something for fall.
0: Okay. (gasps) Oh, I want to go back to Duluth so bad. I didn't get to like. That's a good idea. I didn't get to We're full look on at do Duluth, Duluth
1: Airbnbs. Okay. I anyways, get deep into Duluth. I have I like get three more balls deep, deep into Duluth. I have like four more pages. Let's let's get into okay. this. Okay. <laughs> so they moved back to England, bought a country house. They would even employ a famous architect, Edwin Lutons, to make improvements to the house because I don't know. Apparently, Evita had very interesting tastes. So that'll come into play later. Um, so. Even though Evita loved Constantinople they ended up not going back because in November of 1914 the British declared war on the Ottoman Empire. Yay. God. So, yeah. I always forget that the Ottoman
0: Empire was in World War 1. So this makes sense, but it feels this right. like this anachronistic. It feels anachronistic- like
1: so old. <laughs> um So, as I mentioned earlier, the couple had children. They would have two. Benedict, um, who would have gone to become an art historian, and Nigel, who was the one that found the bag of, like, his mother's salacious. Oh, my God. Oh, God. Like, to be that child, like... I mean, he was obviously an adult at the time, but still, like, he's probably like... Dear God, they did have a third uh, son, but he was stillborn. Yeah. Oh, that's sad. I actually, I found some of my parents' old love
0: letters that they wrote to each other because they had a long distance, but they were kind of boring. But I feel like Vita was not writing some boring. She was
1: like, let me tell you We're about to get into that. (laughs) Oh my God, I'm here for it. So remember how before they got married, I mentioned that her and Violet had a relationship that started in their, like when they grew up together and then like, okay. So during this entire time, Vita had continued to receive devoted love letters from her lover, Violet. She was deeply upset when she read about the fact that Violet was engaged and kind of almost not going to go through with it. Um, and Violet was engaged to major Dennis Trufusis. Trufusis. Dennis. We're going to call him Dennis. Denny. It might actually be It's D-E-N-Y-S. Oh, he's one of those? Yeah. Fucking Dennis. Right? So her response to, like, Violet kind of having this crisis was to travel all the way to Paris, talk to Violet, and persuade her to honor the commitment that she had made to Dennis. Like, she was like, no, go through with the marriage. It's Mm -hmm. fine. Like, so um, Violet, even though she was depressed and suicidal, would go on to marry Dennis Mainly under pressure from her mother, but also, you know, because Vita was like, it's fine. Like, I'm married. You can get married. It's fine. Yeah. Um, though the entire time, Violet made it very clear that she did not love her husband. Uh, Vita actually held kind of a similar sentiment and uh, did go on to write that her marriage was her greatest failure.
0: Well, but look look at the imaging that she had to go off of. Her parents literally were like shacking up with other people and she's hanging out with her, like they didn't keep it a secret. And here's the thing I get at the time, marriage was not a love connection. It was very much a
1: political business situation, which is probably why her parents were so mad about, um, her Marrying someone that isn't going to improve their standing at all. Like, that's the point. Like, they were baroness, you know, they were part of a barondom. I actually don't know what that's called. And, like, and I feel like, I think from baroness to like being a duke, I think that's a step up. So it's like, why wouldn't you want your child to marry up? Exactly. But it
0: seems like their ideas did not mesh with what was kind of happening. Well, not only with what she wanted, but just kind of the way the world was changing. Right.
1: I mean, the guy wanted to marry her too, but she was just like, no, I want to be with the fuck whoever I want, which fuck yeah. So Vida and Violet would actually start disappearing together um, just randomly. Generally, they would go to France, but like they went a few other places too. And one day in 1918, Vita would write that she experienced a radical, quote unquote, liberation where her male aspect was unexpectedly freed. She writes, quote, I went into wild spirits. I ran, I shouted, I jumped, I climbed, I vaulted over gates. I was like a schoolboy let out on holiday that wild, irresponsible day, end quote. The mothers of the two women... Would actually join forces to try to sabotage this relationship. Oh, my God. And force their daughters back to their husbands. Because at this point, they they kept running away and they would spend, like, weeks to months together. Mm -hmm. Um, The mothers were not successful. Actually, in fact, at this point, Vita sometimes would dress as Violet's husband. And like as a man, and they would they made a bond to remain faithful to one another, pledging that neither would engage in sexual intercourse with their husbands, so wow. that they were gonna they were gonna be monogamous to one another.
0: That's a big deal, right? Like that, like that that commitment, especially considering that one of the benefits of Vita's marriage is that it was not monogamous, and he was
1: right having and, an af- and, affairs with men. Right, and Violet would actually go to great lengths to keep this promise intact, whereas Vita. Kinda still had other affairs. She was with move other war. women. She like she was like, yeah, fine, I won't sleep with my husband, but she would go on to sleep with other women, which isn't. <laughs> um, so she's fucking lawyering up. So at the end of the war, because this is all happening during the war, obviously, Harold, uh, being a diplomat, went to Paris to you know write and sign the Treaty of Versailles. Like he was in oh that group. My God. But so he, he's a loser. <laughs> he's moved up in the world. Um, so two secretaries exactly. have died. <laughs> one of which being his father. Um, but so he was off doing that during this time, Vita and Violet went to Monte Carlo where Vita like hardcore went into like, I am your husband. We're going to live together. Fuck our husbands. We're never going back. Yeah. Um, And she actually started cross-dressing as a man named Julian. I don't know why he, she went with that name or Julian. I'm going to go with Julian because I like saying that. I do too. Um, And he was a wounded war veteran. But that was her character. Oh, God. Um, and during this time, she would actually write the first draft of, like, what is considered one of her greatest novels called Challenge. For four months, the women lived together. They were super happy. And they actually became super... This is, like, they became so mad at each other's husbands. This is when they were like, no, we're never sleeping with our husbands again. Yeah. Um. And Violet actually wrote, quote, I treated her savagely. I made love to her. I had her. I didn't care. I only wanted to hurt Dennis. Like, savagely, I mean, like, I think they were passionately. Yeah, like, almost unbridled. So, hold on. I need a minute. I know. (laughs) So, they decided to essentially, like, they viewed their going away to Monte Carlo almost as like an elopement. Yeah. Both like as like a marriage to each other, but then also like just a screw you to society and their obligations and all of this stuff to the point where Vita actually drafted kind of like a last will and testament as if Vita was giving all of her stuff to Julian. Oh, Violet was dressing up as Julian. No, Vita was. So Vita like almost wrote like a last will and testament to, to leave everything to her to male To herself. Yeah. It was really weird. Her, her um, male um, alias. Yep. Okay. And okay. so like, and then she crossed this. So she had gone back briefly and then she crossed the Strait of Dover and joined Violet in France. So they're living together. 100% she's accepting this role of Julian. I don't know. By this point, Everybody fucking knew what was going on. Everyone knew what was going down. And in accordance with a mutually encouraging nature of their partnership, Vita actually had confided in Harold along every step of the way. Because they were actually super okay with it. Like, they had an open relationship. It was a mutual understanding. It it sounds like they were both getting the same thing out of the marriage. And they were both very
0: much on the same page with, like yeah, we're not going to be exclusive to each other. Right. It sounds like Harold was probably in a similar position right. to Vita. And Vita
1: actually wrote to Harold, I am trying to be so good, Haji, but I want so dreadfully to be with her. That's what you, you know, yeah. she wrote to her husband. However, Dennis wasn't so on board with this plan. So, so on Dennis Valentine's Day in 1920, both husbands flew in a two-seater airplane that Dennis somehow knew how to fly. It was funny, in one of the like articles I was reading, like Nigel... The, the son that found the letters was like, when the fuck did Dennis learn how to fly? <laughs> it was great. It was just a rich kid thing. Exactly. Every, every kid, every boy learns how to fly when they're five, if you're rich. Right. And like, <laughs> why did he have an airplane? Like, it was funny because Nigel you're was rich. like, why is all this thing a thing? Anyways. <laughs> but so the husbands jumped in this two seater airplane, um, and went to get their wives essentially. Um, so Violet starved herself when the husbands got there. Dennis cried. Harold had just drawn the new national boundaries of modern Europe with the Treaty of Versailles only to find himself in a private circus of irreconcilable conflict. Um, when the the so the how this ended was eventually Violet admitted that she had slept with her husband right before that they left for like the two women left for France. Okay. Vita. Could not abide by that. She was like, she, you know, Vita was like promised me. Yeah. Vita was like, We said that we would be monogamous to each other. We were not gonna sleep with our husbands. Yeah, that's that's Um, what they agreed to. Monogamy was not what they agreed to. Right. And call so and Vita called it a betrayal. But you have to remember, like, this is a huge moment of hypocrisy. At this point, Vita has had two sons with Harold. Yeah. Um so the exchange yeah. was so profound and symmetrically embarrassing for all involved <laughs> that the um quartet basically all like reverted to being living like normal lives for a little bit mainly just to like regain their sanity. They're all like okay, we're going to like go our separate ways as two separate couples and we're going to pretend this didn't happen and everything's fine. We need to regroup. We need to retreat and regroup
0: because this all got real messy. Right. Real messy. So
1: during this time, kind of after Violet, but before anything else, um, Vita would start writing her memoirs of her relationships. This is the one that Nigel would eventually find later. Um, In it, she sought to explain why, um both why she had chosen to stay with her husband and why she had fallen in love with Violet. So she yeah. like kind of talks about both. The work was originally titled Portrait of a Marriage, and it didn't get published until 1973 when her son found it and then published it. Um, She stated that she wanted to explain her sexuality, which she presented as being at the core of her personality. She wrote that in the future, quote... It will be recognized that many more people of my type do exist than under the present-day system of hypocrisy is commonly admitted. She's like, I know there's more people out there like and me. She was right, right. Oh
0: Vito, you weren't alone. You never were, right. And a
1: lot of that book centers around like how she felt like her desires were both deviant and natural, and like kind of just how she there was this like dual nature within her, yeah. Like, um. And what was also interesting is the portrait of marriage, um, kind of was actually a little bit scientific. She wrote, she like brought in a lot of, um, quotes and stuff from modern, modern at the time sexologists and all of this stuff. She wrote it in the third person. And it was, it sounds like it was a really good book, like for what she was doing, but I understand why she didn't publish it. Yeah. Um, she also wrote another book during this time, which was called um, Challenge. This was a full-length novel that also bears witness to her affair with Violet. Um, they had actually started writing this book together. Um, and it was published in America, but banned in the UK for, for the first, like, chunk of time it was yeah. available. They couldn't handle it. Was too, it was too spicy. Right. For the so the male character's name in this book is Julian. <laughs> Wonder where she figured that one out. Um. So, and I mean, it's it's widely known that Julian was the male version of Vita, and Eve was the um passionate desire of Julian, and obviously that was Violet. Yeah. Um. And she very much kept not necessarily like true to life, but she like, you know, definitely put things in there that rang true. 100% she also really like paid homage to her Romani ancestry which is kind of cool because Eve was a Romani woman like Aww. so she like kind of tied that in as well
0: I like the idea that Eve is an amalgamation of Violet and her more feminine right. or the way she's perceiving her feminine self right and then Julian is her masculine self but also like mm-hmm. just her
1: So while she was writing this, Harold, her husband, wrote a letter to her and was like, please don't dedicate this to Violet. If you do, it's going to kill me. You know, like, you know. And so she didn't. Instead, the dedication um, written in Romani, but like when translated, says this, quote, this book is yours, honored witch. If you read it, you will find your tormented soul changed and free. I love
0: Every single right. word that just came out of your mouth. I love it too. Oh
1: my god. Um so after that like she published those books and kind of why she was writing, Harold and Vita kind of resumed, like I said, they're kind of like in more normal living, um more traditional. And Violet had returned to Dennis. However, there was there was a new affair rising on Vita's horizon. This time with a man. Okay. Um, the writer, Joffrey or Jeffrey Scott.
0: Okay, it depends on if I'm supposed to like him. If I like him, it's Jeffrey. If it's if I don't, it's Joffrey because that's call a terrible him Scott. name. All right, let's call him Scott. That's so, a pre-neutral.
1: Scott lived in a villa overlooking Florence. This okay. is you know fancy. Digging um, it. Just to say that the place he lives now is a UNESCO World Heritage site. So you got to. This is like back in the day when living at th- places that are like World Heritage sites now was fu- Was fine. No yeah. one cared. Um, but he was one of Vita's sharpest readers and editors, so like that's kind of how they met each other. Okay, okay. Um, And Harold was actually Jim and Pam thing. Yep. And Harold was actually rather pleased with this affair because he felt that Scott actually like enriched Vita's mind, whereas he felt like Violet kind of confused it because she wasn't. Violet wasn't really an intellectual. You know, okay. so, and that seems to be a really big thing with her husband. So, like, he was like, no, you're finding someone that's making you a better person. I am all what for a, it. What
0: are those people who are, like, hot for intelligence? I don't know. Sapiosexual but, yeah, or something? Yeah,
1: but that is 100% her husband. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, they had this basically, basically intellectual, like, kinship between the two of them, and that just kind of formed into this romantic entanglement, I guess. Yeah. Um, so Vita at the time was working on a poem called The Land and was also starting to get into garden design. I, I mean, I ain't it's like a to,
0: weird fucking side hobby. I mean, I didn't get into podcasting until my mid-late 20s. Right. So.
1: Um, but she would spend a lot of time at Scott's house where he had olive groves and so he would, she would like learn from like his gardeners and stuff. And she really enjoyed their relationship and his admiration and affection and his wits until she met someone that kind of outmatched him in that department. Dun, dun, dun. So Vita's most prominent relationship and the one some people might be like, I feel like I recognize her name. Um, It's because she Was a lover of Virginia Woolf. Shut the fuck up. I know. I knew you'd be. Yes. Um, Bring it to me. So they began (laughs) seeing each other in 1925 and would end about 10 years later. Kind of the peak of their relationship was right at the beginning. And then, you know, it kind of tailed off. Oh, Virginia Woolf is one of the like most underrecognized by, like, right. hi- famous by historical figures ever. And she is amazing. Oh, my God. The American <gasps> scholar Luis de Selvo would actually write that the 10 years that the two women were together were the artistic peak of both women's careers, owning to the positive influence that they both had on each other. Quote Neither had ever written so much so well, and neither would ever again reach this peak of accomplishment. I'm like, I'm like wet with jealousy
0: about just like to be a fly on the wall of those, these two people interacting. Right.
1: Oh, so here again, Vita maintained the only thing she seemed to maintain when she was having affairs. Uh, It's kind of what people would say, like meritocracy. Like she kind of did what she only dated people based on like the merits she saw in them. So in this case... She ignored the most pressing and oppressive cultural expectations in order to award her attention to the most currently excellent candidate. That's how she like doled out her love. Okay. Um. It didn't matter who, where, what gender, or how married the person might be. <laughs> how married? Only on a scale of one to 10, how married are you right, right now? So the interesting thing about this affair was that the entire, like Vita's entire family embraced Virginia Woolf with warmth and appreciation. Like, even her son, Nigel, remembers Virginia Woolf and thought of her as, quote, delicate, but in the cobweb sense, not the medical. So, like, you know, she was very, like, flighty. And, I mean, everyone generally knows who Virginia Woolf is and what she was like. Um, Yeah. And, as I said, Harold actually really liked Virginia and expected, like, her intelligence to kind of, like, open Vita up to a new world. Everyone's like... Please tell me Virginia Woolf is the one that sticks. Please tell me right. she's the one that sticks around. And then they broke up after 10 years. Everyone's God like, it. God damn it. Uh, so one of the big, I find this funny. So like part of their relationship, Vita lamented how Virginia dressed, particularly her orange wool stockings. Like there's notations in Vita's diaries about how uh, atrociously Virginia dresses. Oh my God. Um, And both she, both Vita and Harold feared that Virginia didn't, pre- possess the emotional resilience to bear Vita's seduction. Like, so Vita was kind of like, I have to be reserved because if I go like full bore, I might break this poor woman. Well,
0: and Virginia Woolf. She
1: She wasn't always stable. Well,
0: she was, she was, she had a lot of mental health problems. She was a survivor of childhood sexual assault and incest. Yeah, we get in that. She, yeah, she had a lot of, a lot of issues that just the society
1: was not. right prepared to address and she was not able to cope with so vita would actually write to her husband at one point quote i am scared to death or arousing physical feelings in her because of the madness i have gone to bed with her twice but that is all like so she's like i don't want to hurt this woman yeah so how vita and virginia met was actually at a dinner party in london um and they actually kind of bonded over coming from rich families vita came from a far richer family than virginia's but virginia still came from a well well yeah exactly so they kind of like bonded over the fact that they had confined childhoods and emotionally absent parents and like all of this stuff and virginia was very much drawn to vita's free spirit yeah, when when you were describing Vita's childhood,
0: I was thinking about Virginia Woolf a right. little, just because the parents were not really parents. Yep, and then especially the father or her, I guess her stepfather, because her mar- her mother married him after her husband died. He was like he viewed his daughters as substitute wives. Right, like it's your job as a woman
1: to take care of me, exactly. especially when your mother dies. So. As the two grew closer, uh, Virginia would actually disclose for the first time to, like, anyone outside her social circle, you know, or her family, that she had been abused by her stepbrother as a child. Yeah, This was largely due to Vita's support um, of her. Like, she was just like, I wholeheartedly support you no matter what you want to do. And Virginia, this is really the first time Virginia felt like she began to heal from her trauma, was having this support from Vita, um, and this actually allowed Virginia to have a satisfying erotic relationship for the first time.
0: Okay. That is so powerful because not only was Vita able to create this trusting environment where Virginia felt that she could speak about this and feel heard, but also right? just the power of being able to talk about something like that to feel heard and feel understood And how this whole culture of silence and pushing it down and don't talk about it
1: is incredibly damaging. Well, and to the point where Virginia actually used to not look at mirrors like she didn't like looking at herself. And the first time Virginia had purchased a mirror was with a trip to France with Vita saying that she finally felt that she could look at herself in the mirror for the first time in her life. And so there's this book that
0: I read called. It, it's I don't even remember the exact title because it's one of those like thesis statement right. titles. But it's basically how uh, being a survivor of sexual assault affected Virginia Woolf's oh, yeah. work and came through in her writing. And Amir was part of
1: that. Yep.
0: So mirrors were very triggering in yeah, a lot of so ways. Vita
1: helped her get over that. Oh my God. And Vita's support gave Virginia greater self-confidence, helped her cast off that image of a sickly semi-recluse, Yeah. if not for anyone else, but for herself. Which is the most important. Um, and she persuaded that Virginia that a lot of the nervous ailments that she had been diagnosed with were actually misdiagnosed and that she should focus on her own intellectual projects and learn to rest when she needed to.
0: I love that. And also she's dealing with this trauma. She's dealing she's dealing with like a lot of the shit that just came up with growing in Victorian oh, yeah. England, which is atrocious in of itself. But now she's kind of being given permission to have those feelings and like hey, if you get tired, you don't have to power through
1: it. You can feel you tired, can you can take a break. Um so Virginia would actually write about her relationship with Vita in one of her most well-known novels, Orlando, yes, um, which flings Vita. Vita is the main character. is written after Vita, from century to century, from sex to sex, a young Elizabethan lad to a lady ambassador in Constantinople, back and forth. Um, it actually concludes with a photograph of Vita at uh, Virginia's house with her dogs. That is amazing. Also.
0: There, uh, like a lot of modern study of Orlando has this trans like oh ooh, there's a lot of sentiments of a trans person that comes through in this and even one of our one of our listeners who's a trans woman yep. has cited Virginia Woolf particularly Orlando and just being like oh my god that like I feel seen I feel heard and now to know that Vita was a central basis for that yeah. and Vita seeing herself as, as like this feminine both. and masculine
1: yep. and that duality
0: that makes so much goddamn right. sense.
1: So in writing this, Virginia essentially event invented the fiction biography fusion genre. Um And what was interesting is Virginia actually depicted Violet in the, in Orlando as well. She was, she depicted her as a flighty Russian princess and in turn because remember, Violet's also a writer. Yeah. Violet would write um, Broderie Glace, which was a cutting novel that belittled Virginia and Vita's romance. And then Vita would go on to publish her own best selling novel, which was The Edwardians, which was a kind of a takedown of a, a Christ- aristocratic society in general. Um, but it's interesting to realize that all of these masterpieces were written about the same time, two of which nobody ever reads. Yep. And basically. Uh, I found this in uh, one of the articles I read, but basically they said, um, uh, "Posterity saw fit to preserve only one mid-century write- woman writer whose name began with a V, which was Virginia Woolf." So what's interesting, I looked up
0: Vita mm-hmm. on Audible because I wanted to see if that one book, "The Portrait of a Marriage," was on there. Yep. All that's on there is "The Land," which is the poem that yep. you mentioned. But then, even I'm searching the Vita-
1: the the Edwardians on there, well.
0: Here's the funny thing. And this ties in exactly what you're saying. You search Vita's name,
1: Orlando by Virginia Woolf comes up. It's very interesting. So during this time, Vita was traveling a lot. Uh, Her husband was living in Persia at the time, and she just really liked going to France and Spain. These trips, however, were emotionally draining for Virginia, who missed Vita intensely. And in Virginia's novel To the Lighthouse... um, theme it's which is notable for its theme of longing for someone absent was mm-hmm. Im- inspired by vita's frequent absences
0: oh
1: so, so as much as the two did love each other there were a lot of tensions in this relationship virginia was often bothered by what she viewed as vita's permit promiscuity um Basically because Vita had a great need for sex, um, that would let her to take up with anyone that struck her fan fancy at any given time. Yeah,
0: and Virginia was much more reserved in that way.
1: Exactly. And that, that
0: can that's tough. It sounds like emotionally they were very much in line, but sexually
1: not like for their needs, not so much. Right. And um so in the nineteen thirties they would clash over um they would actually clash over Vita's husband's involvement with Oswald Mosley and the New Party, which was a fascist group. Oh, and fucking um, Harold. I mean, that that is because um, Virginia was a pacifist. Yes. And so they really remained at odds um, over it because Vita was very much in support of rearmament while Virginia was very much a pacifist. So they would end up, that's kind of what ended their relationship. Yeah. So... Shortly before the end of their relationship, though, um, Harold and Vita would buy Sissinghurst Castle, which I think is still around. It's in Kent. Uh, It had been owned by one of Vita's ancestors and um, basically was her answer to not being allowed to inherit Knoll. she was yeah. like fine I'll buy this other fucking place I'll buy my own
0: goddamn castle I don't need you mom and dad right?
1: <laughs> so at the time when they bought it Sissinghurst was kind of like a rune and um but there was a lot of gardens so that was really a joint labor of love between Harold and Vita in fixing up this house clearing debris um Nicholson so Harold did a lot of like the architecture and stuff doing a lot of classic strong lines, you know, and stuff like that. Whereas Vita really took over the gardens and did a lot of new and experimental stuff. She did stuff in inside, too, with with um, a new system of enclosing rooms, which I didn't read about. Um, It's already long enough. We just have to know she's cool and eclectic but she ended up making like the white garden the rose garden orchard cottage garden the nuttery which I'm assuming is like nut plants um (laughs) she also innovated single color themed gardens and designed principles orienting visitors experience to discovery and exploration so she basically built her gardens for people to come and visit that's cool and Sissinghurst did open to the public in 1938 so basically they did all this work and then opened to the public which is cool uh, during this time, Vita took up writing again after taking a six-year break, mainly because she needed money to pay for all of these renovations at this new house. Yeah. Um, at the time her husband had left the foreign office, so they didn't have the diplomat's salary to draw on. Um, and she was paying for tuition for her two sons to attend Eton College, which was basically what rich people said. Big fucking you know. deal. Yeah. So she felt she had to become a better writer or had become a better writer thanks to Virginia's mentorship. So she was writing a lot. She, um, a little bit later in her life, she started writing a weekly column, which was called in your garden. Um, which rumor she's not a trained horticulturist. She just kind of like, was like, this is interesting and picked yeah. up on it. But she then watched she some started, YouTube videos and started doing it. She started writing a lot about it and writing about Sissinghurst and Sissinghurst is one of the most famous, uh, famous and visited gardens in England. And I'm like, did I visit it? I don't know. If I ever go back to England, I might have to go see it. Can I just say she is
0: poised to have her own HGTV show. Right. Because we love a gal with no formal education who's just like, I bought a castle and made it pretty. Let's check it out. Like
1: I would watch the crap out of that. She would go on to become a founding member of the National Trust Garden Committee. And uh, that National Trust now runs the gardens at Sissinghurst. So it's still around. That's cool. Um, So Vita died at Sissinghurst. Not a shocker. Um, At the age of 70 in June of 1962 from abdominal cancer. She was cremated and her uh, ashes were buried in the family crypt. Um, As I said, the castle is now earned by the National Trust. Her son, Nigel, uh, actually continued living there um, until his death in 2004. And then his son, Adam lived there with his wife who was a horticulturist. (gasps) So they started, they did a lot of restoration and then actually started growing like farming stuff there as well. Um, which unfortunately kind of withered under the, um, eye of the trust. So it doesn't sound like her family lives there anymore. Um, there is a film called Vita and Virginia, which is kind of was like a, it was debuted at a 2018 Toronto International Film Festival. So it's like okay. a B movie. Um, like an indie. Indie, art, that's the word art, I was looking at. Art house. For. Um, but it's a play <laughs> based on love letters between Vita and Virginia. I would watch the crap right. out of that. So I didn't write a lot about her writing. I mean, I did a little, but in the end, she wrote 11 poems, 11 fiction poems, 13 fiction novels, a children's book, six short stories, one play. There are six collections of her letters to various people. She wrote six biographies and a bunch of different guides, mainly about gardening and sissinghurst and stuff like that. Love it. Um, but yeah, so I really wanted to write about her when I found out about her because it was you know like oh Virginia Woolf's lover that you never heard about, and then like I started reading about her and I was like, how have I never heard of this woman? Because n- she was a writer in her own right. Yeah, she was super. Both her and her husband were super open about their same-sex relationships. Yeah, like. And she just sounds like this absolutely amazing woman. Yeah, she sounds like someone I'd want to be best friends with. Just yeah, like you said, to go on a coffee date with and be like, spill the tea, girl. What you, you've been gone for four months? What were you doing? <laughs> what were you up to in Monaco? Yeah, exactly. God, I love it. So yeah,
0: so that's Vita Sackville-West. You know what I think is interesting? We both covered women who are who are overshadowed by, by other someone women, else. Yep, particularly women. That is true. Yeah. Wow. Are our ovaries glowing? Because it feels like they're glowing in sync.
1: I don't know. Vroom, my bladder vroom. is glowing because I have to pee. My bladder,
0: my bladder is also
1: glowing. So you already did. your thankful for?
0: Yeah, I'm thankful that my dad like yeah. didn't have a blood clot or something serious. So, and I'm thankful that I was able to be there and help out. My mom's like, thank you so much. I was like, do you know how many times you had to take me to the fucking ER? Right. You're like, she's mom, like, it's just she's for like, paying. well, that's different. You're our child, and I'm like, and you're my fucking parents, yeah, right? And you don't suck, so I love you.
1: Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yep.
1: Yeah. So I'm thankful for my friends, mainly because I was supposed to go to a movie yesterday and then like I realized I had what week I didn't have class f- mixed up. So I <laughs> I wasn't able to go, but like both the friends that I was supposed to go with, Emily was one of them, were both like super gracious, although apparently Emily had to buy tickets, which was my fault. Um, but not only that. But I like... was very gracious about it. Not bitter at all. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'll buy you and these, again, it's not like you paid me for the other I tickets. I know. So I really I'm, you're net even. I can't be better. Um <laughs> but I'm I'm just thankful for really everyone in my life right now. Like just people I'm I guess what I'm thankful for is people around me being willing, being willing to go with the flow to realize that I have a lot going on in my life right now. And I don't always remember what's what. And I I think part of it is the class in particular. I think we used to have this day off, but then she switched our schedule. So but yeah, so I'm just really thankful for, I guess, having the luxury and the great friends that are like willing to just like go with the flow. And like if I need to change plans last minute, they're like, yeah, I still love you. Like I'm not going to be pissed forever. Just, you know, like, until the day before I died. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, right. Deathbed oh, confession. I was so mad at you, but I still love you.
0: Okay, can I just say, though, so the the movie Jurassic World, I, I pulled out my full Sam Neill cosplay, minus the hat, oh, because Dad, I love you. I used to use the hat for that my friend had, and he didn't have it, and I was sad. But anyway, I went, like, full on out for this movie. Um, Totally put to shame everyone who just showed up in their Jurassic Park shirts. And I'm like, you fucking casuals. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, what if I dress up this way and something happens? I don't get to see the movie, right? This is exactly how it would go down. That's but funny. I still got. to. So when all that stuff was happening, I was like, son of a bit! No, it's fine. It's fine. about it's my fine. ticket. It's fine. fine. Don't worry about it. I still got to see it and I get to see it again with you. Yeah. We'll have to go watch it. And we'll wear our Jurassic park shirts. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for listening to this. It's, it's probably one of the longest episodes we've done in a while. We're getting yeah. back into the swing.
1: Sorry, guys. Or, yay. I don't remember. Really it ain't know. no
0: thing if you ain't got that swing. Do up, 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 I always had the alto part for that song. And it was the most right? boring because it was just like pretend it was, it was you're Daria. Like singing. Like monotone, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like pretend you're Daria and you're singing. It's like stop. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Hurstry. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at
1: WAHpod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com where you can contact us, although our our email is also whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. We also have our merch on there and a link to our Patreon where you can... Donate for as little as $1 to uh, get some extra stuff that we will hopefully be having out soon. Also super
0: special shout out to Marissa. She's one of our uh, funerary cult members and Kelly and I Snapchat her and... Like every other Snapchat she's wearing are when the going gets tough, the tough get tipsy hat. And I I love it. Every time I see it, I don't always acknowledge it in my responses. But Marissa, I fucking love it. And you just make my heart sing.
1: If you ever want to be my Snapchat friend, just ask. It's mostly my dogs.
0: Yeah. Dogs and Kelly jamming out to songs in her car.
1: Yeah, I don't send those to everyone. Or us going on walks. I send those to like four people. (laughs) You're special. I'm so special.
0: Also, raise five stars wherever you listen, which includes Spotify.
1: We love you. We love you. Yeah.
0: Piss off a homophobe. Rate this episode five stars. Yeah. (laughs) And as always, thank you so much for listening to Whining About History. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Um, Bye.